Um, thank you everybody who is local to Davies County. Um, I live in Hopkins County, which is uh, a couple over and, uh, but yours is the nearest town to me to have uh, a lot of things, uh, stores and um, books that my library doesn't carry and things like that. So uh, I'm down there, not infrequently, uh, more infrequently over the past year than usual, but uh, but I'm, I'm grateful to have a chance to chat with everybody and, uh, come in and, uh, do this talk. So, uh, I am, and for everybody else who's not in Davies County, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so, uh, as Wes said, my name is Chris Schweitzer. I'm a cartoonist. I do graphic novels, um, about a variety of subjects, but a lot of times, uh, they tend to be about history. Um, and, uh, uh, Roanoke, uh, which is, uh, this book here, uh, Roanoke colony America's first mystery, uh, is my first full length nonfiction, uh, graphic novel. Um, I've done a lot of historical essays and historical articles and historical fiction, uh, but I've never done a historical nonfiction book before. And, uh, the way that this book, uh, came about is that. Uh, I'd worked with the publisher before first, second books, their division of Macmillan. Um, and, uh, they were launching a history line and they asked if I'd be interested in, uh, being a part of this, uh, the, the history comics line, they've got another, uh, some other things like that. They've got a science comics. Uh, they've got the maker comics, which are sort of how to make things. And I did uh, a book for that line about, uh, how to do car maintenance. Um, but when they were thinking about doing the. Uh, history comics, um, they asked if I'd be interested knowing that I'm a, a big history enthusiast. Um, and I said, sure, I would absolutely love to. And I made a list of probably like 15 different topics that I thought, oh, I could do a great book about that. And I sent that off um, to the editors and uh, they responded and said, well, actually, uh, we've already talked with our acquisitions department, our sales department, things like that. And we already have a list of titles of subjects that we want to be doing. Um, and the one that we thought you would be appropriate for is the Roanoke colony. And they said, would you be interested in doing this? And inside I thought, oh no, that's terrible because I know absolutely nothing about the Roanoke colony except that they disappeared. Um, but I thought, you know, I always like to learn things and uh, I'm most likely to learn things when I have a productive avenue for that uh, education. So if I have a project, uh-oh. Just switched to my wrong uh, camera there. Let me, luckily I had a second webcam. Uh, sorry about that. I don't know why it just cut off. Um, and I lost my train of thought. Uh, but um, anyway, so so having a book to uh, to have as an end product for uh, a, a that that research. Uh, made me excited to do it. So I said, yes, I'd be very interested in doing a book about the, the Roanoke colony. And I admitted that I didn't know anything about it, but that I felt confident in my ability to research it. Um, and they said, great. And so uh, that's what we decided to do. And so I set out um, doing some research uh, about it. And uh, so uh, for those of you who are kids who are watching, um, uh, I don't know how much experience you have doing research for a project, but for me, it can be really, really helpful. And what I like to do is I like to do as much of my research ahead of time 
before I actually start doing the project as possible, because um, you can sort of start working on something and keep checking your books and going back to things whenever you hit a, a roadblock or a stopping point. For me, what's easiest is to learn as much as I possibly can up front. Um, and then that way, once I feel like I know it pretty well, I can just sit down and start writing and I don't really have to check anything. I can check for details, but I know where to check for details and I know what details I'll need. And really it comes a lot more naturally. It's sort of like if you um, uh, learn where all the notes are on a piano and what all your chords are, it's easier to sit down and play something than it is to necessarily learn each piece of music note by note. Although, you know, learning each piece of music note by note is how you learn how to do those chords. So um, so that's what I did to start out with the research. I got um, a few different books and the books that I got are called secondary sources. And what a secondary source is, is it is a book about something like a historical time period uh, by people who have studied that and they are processing that information for you and they're curating it and they're arranging it in a way that is accessible to somebody who doesn't already know about it. Um, and so I got a number of those books and those I think are the best way to, to uh, first learn about something because I didn't know anything about Roanoke and I thought that's going to be a really easy way for me to kind of get to know about things. So I used these secondary sources um, and they were by a few different historians. And what they did is they went back and researched documents and archaeological evidence and things like that. And they wrote about the history of Roanoke. And one of the things that I found when I was, uh, when I was um, reading these books is that everyone approached the narrative very differently. There wasn't really a clear starting point. There wasn't really a clear point of view. Uh, and there wasn't really a clear um, uh, course of events. That isn't to say that each individual author didn't have clarity within their own work, but there wasn't a unified one. Each book was very different, and that's because the story of Roanoke is a very complicated one. Um, and so uh, when I was when I was writing this, that was one of the biggest challenges was how complex the story of Roanoke is. Now, history in general, when we are, uh, when, when we're learning about history, every little thing affects everything else. And so although we might learn about uh, the, the Wild West or pirates or something like that, um, even though we might learn about one specific instance in it, you know, Abraham Lincoln growing up, whatever it might be, Everything about Abraham Lincoln growing up is colored by everything else that happened before in his region, in the world, uh, to his family, uh, all of this stuff. And sometimes it can be really tricky to figure out what is important to know contextually in order to understand that specific story. And the thing that I found with Roanoke is that there was a lot of stuff that you needed to understand contextually in order to really understand the story. The story itself is kind of basic. Um, the very first English uh, colony in North America um, was in uh, was on uh, Roanoke Island uh, off the coast of what is now North Carolina. And uh, there was a colony set there. The governor left 
Uh, and when he came back, everybody in the colony was gone. And there was only one real clue, which was the word Croatoan uh, carved into a tree uh, just outside where the settlement was. Um, and that that's the basic story. And it sounds very mysterious. Where did these colonies go? What happened? Uh, the colonists go. What happened to them? Um, and a lot of people have had different theories uh, over the years. Some people think that uh, the Spanish, who the English were at war with, came and killed everybody. Some people think that uh, the natives who they had been fighting with killed everyone. Some people think that they uh, moved inland and joined in with some of the native communities and became a part of that culture. Uh, some people think aliens abducted them. Some people think that a witch sent them to another dimension. Uh, some people think they turned into monsters or were eaten by monsters. There's all sorts of uh, these different theories, and everybody uh, likes the story of Roanoke because it opens up all these possibilities um, for something that uh, it, we don't know about. Um, we don't really know what happened to the colonists. What we do know is why it happened to the colonists. And that's the part of the story that's very, very complicated because there are so many of these different uh, elements that come together. So some of the things that are really important to understand uh, in order to figure out why the colony failed, why the colony disappeared, um, is that you need to understand what's happening with some of the different uh some of the different native nations uh, in the area. There are sort of three big competing uh, powers um, that are all kind of uh, having border skirmishes. And the Roanoke colony is right around where this border is. Um, you also uh, need to know about how uh, France and England's relationship was. Um, you need to know about how Queen Elizabeth uh, uh, basically gave... Uh, so English sailors, the, the legal right to be pirates against the Spanish. Um, you need to know about uh, how business practices were done. There's a whole lot of these different things that all color the story and that all kind of explain what happens. And so that's what I wanted to do with the book. But like I mentioned, um, in reading these secondary sources, um, I found that there was a whole lot of uh, disagreement as to which things were the most important, um, as to uh, which which uh, historical factors made the biggest difference. And so um, after I read those and had sort of a general sense as to what was happening, um, I thought uh, now is when you go back and look at primary sources. And what a primary source is, is that is documentation uh, of whatever it is that you're studying directly. So if you're studying science and stuff, it's the data that you get. Um, uh, if you're studying history, then it is uh, letters from the people involved. It is uh, legal documents, it's shipping manifests. Um, it's things like that. It's things that were written at the time by the people involved. And lucky for me, there's a big two volume book set uh, that compiles all of the primary documents that we have, uh, at least the textual primary documents about Roanoke. Um, it has everybody's letters. It has all these different things. And it's it was really, really helpful to go through and read that because then um, you could start to see things that sometimes these different authors didn't necessarily think was important enough to focus on or that they didn't necessarily draw a connection between these two things. And that doesn't mean that there 
is necessarily a connection between those two things. But part of our job as historians is to interpret this data and try and find connections that might be important. And so that was one of the things that was really exciting for me uh, when I was working on this. Um, and so uh, once I had all of that in, um, I started uh, working on the book. And one of my favorite primary sources isn't actually texts, but um, it is watercolors, um, watercolor paintings done by an artist named John White, who was one of the first settlers there. Um, he went uh, with sort of a, a preliminary, uh, with, with the, the, the earliest group of settlers, which did not last very long. And the second group of settlers is the one that disappeared. Um, and at first he went as an artist. And then the second time around, um, the person who was financing the expedition, a guy named Sir Walter Raleigh, for whom Raleigh, North Carolina is named, uh, made him the governor of the colony. And so uh, there's a, a wonderful book called A New World um, uh, by Tim Sloan, which is basically a collection of these watercolor drawings by John White. And so some of the things that were really helpful for me were seeing some of his drawings of um, some of the settlements. So like here is... Uh, a painting that he did of um, some of the natives fishing. And he shows that they use these different types of nets and that they use these long dugout canoes and that sometimes they even make fires uh, in the middle of the boat in order to attract the fish because the light would attract the fish the same way that some people fish using a flashlight. Um, and so I would take these uh, drawings and sort of reinterpret them in my style. And then because of his drawings, I'd know what a net would look like or what a, um, uh, how the, the canoeing looked like. And I could do, uh, stuff like this. So I have a section on fishing and, um, you can see sort of how the canoe looks, how their nets look, um, them, uh, setting the fires and then explaining why the fires wouldn't hurt the boats and explaining sort of how some of the boats were made. So, um, so White's watercolors were really helpful to me and they didn't cover everything, but they gave me a really good starting point uh, to depict a lot of, uh, a lot of the stuff for the, uh, the Choanokes and the Roanoke tribes um, and so, and the Secatans. And so that made things very easy for me um, where that was concerned. What was a little more difficult was some of the stuff about the colony itself, um, because the English, they might have uh, drawn maps of the colony. They might have drawn plans for some of the buildings. Um, but when they uh, when a big group of them left, they had to to throw all of that stuff into the sea because the boats that they were taking to the ship to, to go home. Uh, were getting swamped by these giant waves and they were about to sink and drown. And so they had to dump all this chess uh, of things that they had recorded. And so we don't have a whole lot of records for some of this stuff. So some of it I had to make up. Um, so like an example of that would be, let me see, uh, this. So here is a sort of a, a a diagram of what the first colony of Roanoke looked like, um, where the buildings would be and how they'd be arranged. 
And we don't actually know that. And um, as far as I know, nobody's ever done a, an illustration of that, or at least I couldn't find one if they had. And so uh, what I had to do in that instance was go through and read um, different, uh, different accounts of what buildings they had built, um, what materials were being used, and look at the shapes of some of the, the forts and palisades that uh, the person who designed it, whose name was Ralph Lane, had built elsewhere. And he tended to favor specific shapes for the earthworks. And so I incorporated all of that uh, into this diagram. And I did that kind of thing a few times throughout the book. And that, to me, is really exciting because um, it can be hard to envision something when you're just reading about it. Um, and it can be a lot easier when you have something visual, which is one of the reasons why I think graphic novels uh, and picture books are so great for teaching history. Uh, they give you a chance to look at things and get a better sense of them. Um, and I really like graphic novels uh, and I really like illustrated picture books uh, that are illustrated rather than ones that use photos of things in museums um, because the ones, the, the photos of things in museums, while they're really helpful and they're great to give you a sense of sort of the realness of a specific object, it can be hard to envision that in, uh, in use. Um, and so sort of interpreting that visually in a way that we can see can be really helpful. Uh, I don't know if any of you all watch movies that take place at different periods in history, but to me, that can be one of the, the best ways to sort of familiarize yourself with history. And some movies are very inaccurate in terms of what they are depicting, uh, like the, the details of stuff, but fewer than you'd think. A lot are generally really good about giving you a general sense of things, even if some of the specifics are a little bit uh, iffy. Um, and it can be great because then when you read about it, you can sort of picture it in your mind uh, a little more easily. Um, and so anyway, uh, that's sort of the, the basis for how I got involved in this book and um, how, I, how I got started with it. Um, and I'm going to go into uh, sort of how we make comics and how we, uh, how we um, uh, do some of the, the process stuff. Uh, but before I do that, I wanted to ask if anybody has any questions about um, what I've talked about so far, sort of getting involved in the book and, and using sources in order to find stuff. Another uh, type of primary source before I, before I finish is uh, archaeological stuff. So there are people who do archaeological digs. Uh, around the the Roanoke site, those those still go on, and every every year we're finding you know new things. They're not every year, but you know uh, consistently over the past four hundred years, we are still finding new things, and we're finding new ways to interpret the things that we already have uh, as technology progresses and things along those lines. So, um, does anybody have any questions uh, at this point? And Wes, I'm not sure if you're on hand. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm looking. I'll see any. Uh... Yeah, though. Yeah. Anybody got any questions? And if not, I can move on to the next thing. I just wanted to give people a chance uh, to sort of break things up. Yeah, I'm looking through the comments now. Nothing's popped okay. up. We've had a few comments, but no, no questions just yet. Okay. Um, 
Well, before I get into some of the theories about Roanoke, I wanted to talk a little bit about how comics are made. Um, so one of the things that uh, is uh, kind of tricky with a, a series book like this is that there is a set number of pages. Um, so, uh, and, and there's a little bit of wiggle room, but I think it's like between 116 and 120 pages. So, uh, and the font size is uniform from each book in the series. So what that means is that I have a very specific amount of space to fill. Um, and usually, uh, sometimes when you're, if you're writing a paper for school, they, they may say, well, it has to be two pages. And you think two pages, how am I going to fill two pages or four pages? How am I going to fill four pages? For me, it's the opposite. It's how do I keep it only 120 pages? Like filling 120 pages is usually not that hard for me um, because there's so much stuff that I want to talk about and so much stuff that I want to get into. But I have to figure out how to make sure that I don't go over and have to cut out important things. And so I want to try and plan ahead of time as much as I can uh, what's going to go into the book. And so usually I'll do an outline for the book. And it's kind of like a table of contents because I'll put page numbers next to the outline. So usually I will um, take, uh, sometimes I'll take post-it notes or things like that and write all the stuff that I want to have in a book on the post-it notes. I do this when I'm doing fiction too. I'll have scenes that I want in a particular story and I'll have all those scenes in a post-it note. And just like with this, I'll sort of rearrange them until I make sense because with the Roanoke book, um, there are so many different things that we're talking about that I didn't want readers to get lost. And I also wanted to make sure that um, we comfortably segued from one topic to another in a way that made sense. Uh, and in a way that gave you the information that was necessary in the order that it was necessary to get it. Um, when I did the car maintenance book, car maintenance was one of the hardest things uh, for me to learn, and try, or at least the, the mechanics of how an engine works, because in order to understand how this part of the engine works, you have to understand how this part of the engine works. And to understand how that part of the engine works, you have to understand how this other part of the engine works. And you really have to understand all of it to understand any of it. And so it makes having a starting point really difficult. And the same is kind of true with history a lot of times. The more you learn about history, the easier it is to learn about history because you have starting points. But when you're jumping into something new, and I always have to assume that my readers are jumping into something new, um, trying to figure out what's the best opener is going to be kind of tough. And so uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, the, the only two uh, people who are present for the entirety of the Roanoke drama uh, are uh, two, um, uh, I find out later, probably teenagers. And I'm really sorry that I didn't know that until well after the book was done or I would have drawn them to look younger. Um, uh, two native Secatans who lived uh, on and around Roanoke Island, uh, Mantio and Wanchis. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to do the book through their eyes because um, it's almost like an alien invasion story. You have these people that you've never seen before showing up and throwing everything into disarray. Um, and what's really neat to me about these two characters is although they know each other and they're friends historically, um, they have two very different approaches to how they respond to the colony. Mantio um, 
is enamored by this uh, exotic civilization that he's suddenly introduced to and becomes fully immersed into it. He goes sort of native English and he starts learning the language and uh, dressing that way. And he uh, adopts that religion and he uh, they become a part of his family. And when it comes time to fight, he decides to fight on the, the side of his adopted group. Uh, Mandy, on the other hand, is very distrustful of the English and sees them as this um, uh, destructive force that's going to, uh, because they are, uh, demonstrate themselves to be very violent and uh, to be very uh, irregular in terms of what it seems like you can anticipate their behavior to be, uh, is going to be a real problem for his people. And so he ends up going on the opposite direction and fighting against the English. But at the beginning, they're both friends and they're both checking things out and they travel to England together. Um, and it seemed like a really nice way to uh, introduce the book through that lens by making them the narrators. Um, and by, because then they could both uh, give the reader these two very different points of view. Um, and so uh, knowing that that was the basis, I, I started making my list of what was going to be uh, in the book. And I, uh, as I mentioned, I did it kind of like a table of contents because I knew I had 120 pages or, or close to it. Um, I said pages, you know, one through four, uh, or pages, pages one through six, um, sort of teaser introduction where they find the colony missing pages, uh, six through eight, uh, introduce the themes of the book and the narrators pages, uh, nine and 10, uh, introduce Secatan culture, page 11, talk about the different national rivalries in, uh, the Eastern United States and so on and so forth. And so with that table of contents, I was able to go in and sort of shave some off here or add some here, uh, and eventually figure out what was going to be in the book and how much was going to be in there. Um, and once I had that kind of figured out, I sent it off to my editor, um, whose name is, was, uh, uh, is, I mean, he's, he's alive. He was my editor. Um, uh, his name's Dave Roman. Um, and if you've ever read the astronaut Academy books, he's the, the writer and artist of those. Um, and he was also an editor on Nickelodeon magazine for a long time back when, back when that was a, a, a regular publication. Um, and so I, I sent this off to Dave and he looked at it and he said, um, I think this works really well, but uh, there's a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, you're not really focusing on the mystery part of things. Um, you know, uh, the reason that kids get excited about Roanoke is because of the mystery and you're kind of presenting it as a here's what I think happened type of thing rather than sort of really chomping into the mystery and letting that be the meat of the book. And I said, well, that's very true. And so I reorganized my, my thing a little bit and sort of figured out what uh, I was going to do. And so this time I put a lot more emphasis onto what some of the different theories were. And so I mentioned those, uh, some of those earlier. Um, and that became a big chunk of the end of the book. Um, and so once, once I had that outline done, um, that's the part where you sit down and start writing and different people have different approaches to writing. Um, some people will do a really, really tight outline. Uh, some people will 
uh, move straight to what's called a script. And a script uh, for comics is kind of like a script for a play. If you've ever read a script for a play, it has the character's name and the dialogue, what they'll, what they'll say. Um, and usually it will have uh, panels and panel descriptions. So it'll say something like page one, panel one. And the panels are the different boxes in comics that the pictures are in. Um, and so it'll say page one, and then it'll have panel one, and it'll give a panel description. It will say, um, so my page one, panel one, uh, is this, and the panel description might say, um, a ship sits at anchor outside, uh, a bay, and you see a, a boat being rowed to shore, uh, and the wind is blowing, and it looks like a storm is coming. And that might be my, my first panel description. Um, in this last one, it'll it'll say Governor White, something's not right because that's his dialogue. Um, and if you're working collaboratively, uh, two, two, two or more people working on a comic, usually this is a necessity, having the script. If you have a writer and an artist, the writer will probably write out the script and give it to the artist, and then the artist will draw it. Um, but because I was writing and drawing it myself, I am a lot more comfortable skipping the, sk the script stage altogether and writing as I draw. And so the next stage of comics is one that I combine with the writing stage, and that is the penciling stage. Sometimes uh, these are tight pencils, sometimes they are roughs or thumbnails, some people call them, um, because in theory you draw them small like a thumbnail. Um, and I do all of that at once. So when I start doing my pages, I will um, just sort of draw this uh, from the get-go and start uh, figuring out what it's what's going to be on that page. And I do this for a variety of reasons. Uh, the biggest one is that because I have that, that fixed page count, um, it's more important to me to make sure that I pack as much into each page as I'm able to. And so if I have a panel and I know what I want the character to say, then I can arrange where that, that, that lettering is, that wording. And then I'll realize, oh, I have about this much more space if I just put a, put a panel border here and make another panel next to it. And then that will determine what that next panel is going to be because it's a lot smaller, so I can only fit so much in there. So I'm going to squish that down a little bit. And so it becomes a much more organic process to me if I'm doing it all together. And I can usually fit a lot more in. When I'm doing fiction that doesn't have a page count, if it's not part of a series and it can be as long as it wants, I usually don't necessarily do this. I might write a script ahead of time or I don't worry about trying to pack as much into a page. But when I have a set page count, I try to cram as much as I possibly can in there because there's so much information that I want to share and so little space in which to do it. Um, there was a, a TV show called Gilmore Girls um, that was famous because all the characters talked really fast. It's not the only reason that it was famous, but um, that was something that a lot of people discussed and noticed about it. And it's because uh, the writers wanted to put more dialogue in the show than there was time to shoot it. And so the actors had to speak really, really fast in order to get all the dialogue out. Um, and that's kind of what I do here, except instead of making the font smaller, because that's not really an option or anything like that, um, I will just try and squish the panels as close as I can in order to make sure that I get as much in as possible. And that doesn't mean that I'm uh, 
omitting bigger panels that are uh, necessary. I do have a lot of bigger panels and things if I feel like a moment needs its majesty. Um, but if it's something that's just dialogue that just needs to be getting across um, or a reaction or something like that, I'll try to make it as skinny as I can in order to fit it in there. Um, so once that's done, I'll, I'll end up penciling the entire book. And um, one of the reasons that we do this penciling rather than do a finished drawing from the beginning um, is because uh, as comic artists, we tend to mess up a lot. So if you're a kid and you draw, or if you're an adult and you draw, you might notice that when you draw, you sometimes mess up. I mess up all the time and I have to redraw over and over and over again. But it's a lot easier to redraw if you're redrawing your pencils than if you're redrawing a finished drawing. So what pencils are, are they're kind of like an underdrawing. So um, if I wanted to draw, uh, let's say I'm going to draw Mantio from, from the book. So um, Mantio kind of has a roundish head. Um, and I'm, let me move a little farther away from the screen so that uh, we can see the, the pencil line. The, the, the computer wants to turn whatever's almost white all the way white, uh, the, the webcam. And so it makes it sometimes tough to see what's being drawn. So, um, so I'll draw a little bit bigger. So, um, so I'll draw this sort of this, this oval and I'll look at it and I'll think that oval's not quite the right shape. What can I do to make it a little bit more the right shape? And so I'll bring it down a little bit and that sort of thing. And then I'll put in what are, what for me are called guidelines, um, where I kind of figure out where eyes are going to be and the nose is going to be and things like that. Um, cause it's real easy to draw an eye, like one eye down here and one eye up here. And you kind of, you, you know, you want everything to line up. And so I'll put a line across the middle and that's, that's my eye line. That's where I'm going to put, uh, the eyes that I draw. I'm going to move a little bit farther away so that there's, there's less of that way. And then I'm going to do another line here, which kind of shows where my nose and mouth and everything is going to be centered. Um, and I'll keep reshaping it now that I've kind of had them turned. I need to bring that forward a little bit. Um, I'll put my ears in. I'll put the nose in here, give myself some space for the eye sockets. And so I've started drawing this and I noticed his chin is not nearly big enough in proportion to the rest of his head. So I'll bring that chin down a little bit. Um, I'll bring that head back, figure out where his eyebrows are going to go. He's got a mohawk. And he's got an earring, some hair in the back. And so I'll do this drawing, and now I'm kind of happy with how this drawing looks. Um, uh, I'm not really because I'm drawing it sort of just barely being able to see it, but, you know, we, we, you get the idea. And then now uh, in looking at that, you can see there are a lot of places where there's multiple places where I sort of redrew what I was doing. And comic artists do that a lot. You know, sometimes we'll erase. If we're working digitally, a lot of us work uh, drawing on a screen. Uh, uh, some of us use pencils. We might erase it. We might just draw over it and sort of build up slowly with sketches. But then we'll go in and do what's called inking. Now, not every comic artist does this. Some people just tighten their pencils. Some people use a variety of different techniques and don't actually use ink. But because comics started out as a very line-based medium um, for newspapers and for comic books, uh, the 
print on the page. Um, the aesthetic of a lot of comic books tends to be line-based. And so a lot of us draw using lines and then sort of um, filling in form by creating black shapes to define um, where shadows are and things like that. Um, and so then I'll go in, after I've done all my mess-ups, I'll go in and do my final drawing with the inks. And that's what's usually printed in the comics page. And so if you have a copy of this book or another comic, you can look in in that black line that you see, that's the inks. So now I'll go in and do this finished drawing here. And I'm much less likely to make mistakes on this drawing than I would be if I was drawing it just from scratch. Um, and so then that's my my drawing of Manchise there, uh, or uh, uh, Mantia. Um, and so uh, so that's the the inking stage. So I'll go through and I'll I'll do all the inking. Um, and once that's done, once that inking is done, or, or excuse me, after the penciling stage, I'll send that book off to the editors and get feedback from them. And hopefully, uh, this isn't always the case. And when it's not the case, it's very frustrating. But hopefully, uh, once you send your pencils to the editor, they'll find anything that they think needs to be changed um, uh, in order to... Uh, fix those problems before you get to the final art, because it's a lot easier to fix pencils than it is to fix finished colored art. So, um, so at that point, I send it off to the editor, and the editor looks at it themselves, and then also uh, shares it with their experts. So when they're doing a nonfiction series like this, they'll have historians on hand, or they might have anthropologists on hand. So for the Roanoke Colony, um, they worked with... Uh, a person who was uh, involved with Algonquin studies. Um, and then they were, uh, we also uh, sent it off to uh, the writer of one of the secondary source books uh, that I had read. Um, and that was really fun because um, uh, the, the editor, Dave, uh, asked me, uh, is there anybody that I wanted to do a forward to the book for, um, a historian or something that I thought might uh, lend it some weight or something like that? And I said, well, my, my favorite of the books was uh, done by uh, Dr. Karen Kupperman, who's a, a historian who, who has done a lot of great uh, colonial research. Um, and then I thought, and I thought, you know, it's not a last name that you hear all that much. And uh, there's a cartoonist named Michael Kupperman. I wonder if they're related. And I looked online, and sure enough, Michael Kupperman is the son of Karen Kupperman. Um, and so um, uh, I said, hey, Dave, do you know Michael Kupperman? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, his mom's who I want to do the forward. Can you reach out to him and see if he can reach out to her? And Dave said, sure. And so that put that into effect. So um, uh Anyway, so so uh, she read it as well, and so um, I used the the notes that they had uh, and incorporated that into my revision. So I went in and revised the the pencil draft, and then I went in and inked it, like I showed you there. Um, and usually, in in the past, I've always inked stuff uh, 
not always, but most of the time on paper. Um, so I'll do my, my pencils digitally. I'll work on a screen. And actually, my screen is sort of right here. Uh, it, it's attached to my computer, and I use sort of a, a, a special type of pen, and I can draw right on the screen. Um, and so I'll do that pencil stage digitally because it's a lot easier for me to just go, oh, whoops, I messed up, undo, than it is for me to erase stuff. Um, although sometimes my drawings are better if I do them on paper. So there's really kind of a balance. And a lot of times it, it's dependent on how much time I have to work on something. Um, but this one I decided to ink digitally because I be the easiest way to do it. So inking digitally is slower for me than working on paper, but it is faster for me in preparing the images to be colored because if you work on paper you've got to scan them in and you also have to get rid you have to digitally erase the uh pencils that you did so um so there's kind of a balance to it and you're you're doing trade-offs um and i thought well moving getting the the files prepared to do color i would rather skip that stage and be a little slower on the inking than i would to be faster on the inking and have to take more time doing that so I penciled it digitally, and then when it was done, um, I gave those files to my wife, Liz, and she uh, has a computer downstairs. So this is my studio up here, and it's upstairs, um, and it takes up the whole upstairs of our house, and the downstairs of our house is the family part of our house. And uh, my wife keeps her computer uh, in the dining room part of our kitchen, um, and so she will go through and do... Uh, what's sometimes called flatting. And that's where you um, uh, basically put in colors that aren't necessarily going to be used at the end of the, uh, in the actual book, but uh, that make it easier to go in and digitally color things later. And so what Liz does, some people will flat entire pages and separate everything. Uh, what Liz does is she doesn't do the whole page, but I will give her an image that has the main characters on it and she'll go through and color those main characters for the whole book. Um, and some things she won't put in, like they have tattoos and stuff like that. She doesn't draw the tattoos on or color the tattoos on. Um, and she doesn't necessarily put where the, they, their cheeks are red or things like that. Um, but she will color their skin and their clothes and their hair and stuff like that. And that makes it a lot easier for me to go in and color everything else because it may only take, you know, 20 minutes to color those parts of those characters. But when you add up 20 minutes for every page, um, that's a lot of minutes. You know, that's an hour for every three pages. And if you've got 120, that, that's a whole week's worth of work that Liz does that I don't have to do. And so we team up on that part. And then she gives me those files back and I go in and color everything else. And then once that's done, I'll send it off and there'll be another round of edits and then it's all, it's all finished up. Now, one thing that's kind of neat about, uh, about books, uh, or, or not neat, but it's interesting, I guess, is that a lot of times the books that you see that are new, they come new to the library or they come new to the bookshelf, um, uh, are actually not that new. They've been finished for a while. And so like the Roanoke book, I finished well more than a year before it came out. Um, and so that that uh, sometimes means 
that especially when you're doing something nonfiction where they're always looking at stuff like Roanoke, that uh, there might be new information that comes out between when the book is finished and when the book is released that you can't necessarily put into the book. And that's always uh, makes you nervous. And so while the book, I think right after the book came out, there was an article that was like new information found at Roanoke. And I was like, what? Oh no. And I read it and it was all stuff that I'd already put in the book. It wasn't, it wasn't new. It was just new interpretations of things that, that we we've done before. Um, so I was like, whew. So that, you know, that, that happens from time to time, but that doesn't bother me as much now because I have books, you know, already out and coming out regularly. But if you're a new author, that can be very daunting because you you finish a book and you're so excited to share it with your family, to share it with your friends, and to share it with your peers, to show other authors and cartoonists and illustrators that you're one of them. And you just have to sit and wait and wait and wait and wait for it to come out. And then when it comes out, because you're relatively new to your field, you've gotten so much better since the book has been released that then when it does come out, you're kind of like, oh, this isn't a reflection of my best work. So publishing can be kind of tough uh, from that standpoint, but it gets easier the, the longer that you do it. Um, so that's how uh, the, the comics are made, or at least how my comics are made, graphic novels. Uh, different, different people make them different ways. A lot of times people will team up on books, um, and I've teamed up on books before. I've written books that other people have drawn, and I've drawn books uh, that other people have written. I say people. I've drawn books that my friend Kyle has written. Uh, other than that, oh, and and I've done some some shorter comics that other people have written. But usually, I'm writing and drawing for myself, and that's where I usually have the most fun. Uh, because um, as I'm drawing things, I might realize, oh, this might be something I can use later. I might draw something on somebody, like a piece of costume, that then I realize could be part of the plot going down the road. And so that becomes a lot of fun for me. Um, so anyway, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanted to uh, open up uh, for questions if anybody had questions about Roanoke or about making comics or anything like that. Hey Chris, yeah, we've got a few questions and I'll, I'll go ahead and throw them all your way that we've got so far and you can answer them in the order uh, that you see best. Uh, the first one is from Allie and she wanted to know if you'd ever visited Roanoke. And I know you're a big visiting the site guy, mm -hmm. so I'm sure you've got some good stories about that. Uh, and then we had another, another one from uh, uh, Danielle who uh, asked if you'll be doing more Q&As. Uh, her son's really into them. Uh, so mm -hmm. if you want your Patreons, I know you got a lot of cool uh, content up there. Uh, okay. And then uh, the last, oh, uh, yeah, we've got one. Uh, thank, thanks so much for doing this. This is from Sierra. And thanks to us for hosting. Uh, and she asked what your favorite thing to draw in the book was. And that's our question so far. Okay. Um, so the first question from Allie, I have not ever been to the, the Lost Colony of Roanoke um, site. I would have really liked to have gone, uh, but my schedule just didn't permit it when uh, it was time to be doing this book. Um, uh, there were a variety of factors that made it to where I just couldn't do an extended set of travel then. Um, a lot of times I will try and, and research. I looked at a lot of people's vacation photos. I looked at, um, I have a relative who lives nearby and they sent me some pictures of some things that I was curious about, mostly plants and trees and things like that. Um, like I can get us, I, I looked at Google Earth a lot to get a sense as to where the layout was of things, but, um, uh, the 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 thing that is the most helpful for stuff like that is, or that that is the hardest for me, 
is knowing what the plants look like close to the ground, which may sound silly, um, but, you know, in a lot of photos of, of different locations, nobody really photographs the ground. And so to see, like, you know, when you're in the thick of uh, undergrowth and things like that, like how roots work in that particular type of soil, what kind of plants grow up next to trees, things like that, that can be kind of tricky. Now, Roanoke is a little more, um, it's a little looser in style in terms of uh, what, what the aesthetic is. And so there was a lot less concern over what the specific foliage looks like. But that's still something that I keep in mind um, when I'm working. Um, so I, I haven't had a chance to visit there, but it is a place that I hope to visit um, and to go see the play. They have a play that's been going every year. And I've got a, a very good friend named Jacob York, who's a playwright. Um, and he's also an actor. He's in, he's in different things. If you're a, a historical person, he's in the, the, the season finale of Turn in a pretty important part. Uh, but he, um, he played uh, the pirate Simon Fernando for a summer when he was either in college or fresh out of college at the Roanoke Playhouse. Uh, so I thought that was kind of neat. So when I first started posting pictures about that, he was, he was sending me messages and was saying, hey, that's me. Um, so hopefully I'll, I'll go there. But I do think that if you can visit sites, you should. And I, I regret not having been able to visit this one uh, before. But the, the period of finding out that I could do the book versus when I had to turn it in uh, was too slim for me to be able to pack it in there with my other work requirements. Um, uh, the next question was, uh, am I going to do more Q&As and things like that? Um, I like to. I, I don't do them all that much. Um, uh, but, you know, every once in a while I'll do like a studio tour where I show people around like where I work and, and talk about things like that. And a lot of times I'll visit other people's shows if they have them um, or doing online conferences or things along those lines. Um, but I'm going to try to get in the habit of doing more, uh, comic stuff, especially geared towards kids on, uh, how to do different, different types of things. So I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you very much. Um, and Sierra, thank you for, for that. And, um, uh, my favorite thing in the book to draw was, I was, I was proudest of the, the colony thing that I, that I showed just because, um, I did do a lot of deductions kind of to, to arise at that one. But um, my favorite thing was, well, if I can find it, um, was probably uh, this, which was this um, sort of diagram of the ship, the tiger. And that's just because I really like boats and I really like explaining boats and talking about boats. Um, uh, I crewed on a, a historic tall ship. If y'all have ever seen the the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, um, the Interceptor, the one that they steal at the beginning, the small one, um, uh, that's the ship that I crewed on. It's actually called the, the Lady Washington, um, and it sails up and down the, the West Coast, sort of from, from southern Canada to northern Mexico. Um, and I was able to, to crew on that and, uh, for, for a while, and that was a really great experience. There's another cartoonist uh, named Lucy Bellwood who uh, is fantastic, and she does a lot of the, the, the types of Q and A's that I think um, uh, folks are probably keen on. Um, and she left home with, with her parents' uh, support uh, at 16 and, and sailed on the Lady Washington for three years um, before turning to becoming a cartoonist. And so she got me, uh, introduced me to, to the folks there and got me that, that crew position, which I was really excited about. Um, uh, 
and so anyway, so it, I, I did it thinking that, well, I'm going to go through and sketch everything on the boat and learn how to do that. And after about a week or so of being on the boat and having to learn, you know, there's 160 lines or something, and you have to learn all their names and what they do so that when the captain or the mate calls out and says, you know, belay the the this or that, you you can run over there and do that really fast because it might be really important that you do it really fast. Um, and so once I learned all that, I realized I didn't have to draw everything while I was on the boat because I just kind of had it in my head now. And now if I need to sit down and draw a historic tall ship, I can do it without really referencing anything, which is a really useful skill for the type of stuff that I do, which a lot of times involves boats or pirates. Um, and so that kind of goes back to what Ali asked about visiting Roanoke, like practical experience with these, you know, places and things like that lend themselves a great deal towards making your job as a cartoonist or illustrator or writer easier if you are in a position where you can take advantage of them. All right, any, any other questions? I don't see any more in the chat. Uh, feel free to get them out there now. Okay. I will say, uh, if anybody is interested in reading the book, uh, uh, any patron out there, we do have a copy uh, that's in process, and we've got a lot of Chris's other books. So, you know, if you can't uh, grab one for yourself, you know, we we, we, we always like uh, keeping Chris's stuff in stock. We're, we're a big fan of that guy. We're all the staff. Uh, he's done a lot for us, and we definitely appreciate him. Uh, well, you were very kind, Wes. Well, thank you so very much. No problem. We, we love what you do. Uh, while we're waiting to see if any more questions come through, if you got any kind of plugs you want to throw out or what you're working on now or, or um, right, right now I am uh, working on a uh, book that is geared towards uh, older teens and adults uh, with my friend Kyle, who lives in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, it's called the six sidekicks of trigger Keaton. And it's um, about uh a a martial arts tv star who is terrible to everybody uh and he gets killed and his six former supporting actors whose careers he all ruined uh, have to team up to try and solve his murder while also karate fighting everybody um and uh so i'm i'm more than halfway done with that but not as far past halfway as i would like to be um i'm also uh where are they here um oh hello cat there's a cat on the floor um and i'm also making wooden things i don't have any within the immediate uh grab but i'm making like christmas ornaments and wooden toys and things like that and those are made using drawings that i do that i then uh affix to uh wood and then make stuff out of them um so that's uh, i haven't been doing it as much uh over the past few weeks because i've had a lot of um uh publishing deadlines but when i have free time that's something that i, I spend time on that's good uh, we'll definitely look forward to that we're, we're also big fans of kyle's and we do have quite a bit of his stuff too his, uh, his books are a trip and i definitely suggest checking them out he does a lot of the rick and morty comics and uh, mm -hmm things of that nature. The Mars attacks that him and Chris did, uh, very awesome. And we do have uh, that in stock too. So uh, I don't see any more questions. So Chris, I guess uh, we'll let you go. We appreciate the time you've given us today. And it seems like everybody's uh, really fascinated with the subject matter. And I'm sure we're all going to be reading the book. Well, I really appreciate it, Wes. Thank you, everybody who uh, came out and joined us today. And I hope that uh, you 
uh, get a chance to visit your library soon. Uh, pick up a copy of uh, Roanoke Colony if you uh, if you've got them, and if uh, they don't have it, most libraries are really good about ordering stuff if you are keen to uh, read it. So feel free to ask your librarian. So anyway, thank you all so very much. Thanks, and have Chris. a great afternoon. Bye bye.